Friday Lunchtime Lectures at the Open Data Institute. And economists have uh, tried to provide a kind of technical, uh, a, a description of the technical characteristics of something that makes it a public good. And those two technical characteristics are rivalrousness and excludability. Rivalrousness is the idea that if I have these sunglasses, no, they're not sunglasses, if I have these glasses, you don't have the glasses. So lots of goods are like that, and then there are lots of goods that are not like that because uh, the people on this side of the room can see the screen and the people on the left side of the room can see the screen. And so within this room, the screen, the information, the words I'm using are all non-rivalrous goods. If somebody uses them, it doesn't stop somebody else using them. Now, this is interesting that public goods have been described as a problem, are regarded as a problem by economists, and that's because economists regard markets as the sort of, you know, what where human beings started. You know, the Garden of Eden, there weren't any markets, but there you are. Um, the market is the definition, a sort of paradigm of normality, and public goods present a problem. The problem is how you're going to fund them because you can't exclude people from having them once you make them. If, if I defend the country, uh, if I defend Great Britain with an army and an air force and a navy, then everybody benefits from that and I can't sell that product, that good that I've created and that is a public good and therefore according to Vincent and Eleanor Ostrom, Eleanor going on to win the Nobel Prize, I don't know what happened to Vincent, um, that is a problem. Um, but some people think of public goods as an opportunity and that's Thomas Jefferson and I can't think of a politician who has been more eloquent and more passionate about the potential of information as a public good. You can tell from the way he writes this that he's really pretty excited about this and he says lots of things along these lines. Um, and there's some interesting things that I... So, so when I was doing the, the Government 2.0, I, I chaired the Government 2.0 task force in Australia, which is sort of equivalent to your Power of Information task force. And one of the things that I kind of immediately noticed is that all these things... Ooh. I knew it would do some strange things. It's in, the, it's in a different program. Anyway, that all those things are, according to that technical definition public goods. But that's funny, isn't it? Because they were all built privately. The government didn't build any of them. Some of them were built for profit. Some of them were built for uh, from philanthropic motives and others are kind of, well, another one is open source software and that's just sort of software that somehow assembles itself as we go. Um, there is one thing, though, that is even more remarkable. There we are. The slides are doing strange things. There is one thing that is even more remarkable, and it is this, that the profit, that, that all of these platforms are in fact excludable, but not excluded. The people who run them choose not to exclude them. So they're public goods by choice. They, each of these things could have been run as a private market good and sold with a 
uh, a um, uh, paywall, or it could have been given away for free and provided as a public good. Now, the incredible thing is that Google finds, and my back-of-the-envelope calculation tells me that Google generates about a trillion dollars of economic value every year, and Google manages to scrape by on a measly $60 billion that it gets through advertising. That's 6% of the value that it creates, it manages to capture, and $60 billion is more than enough to run Google. So that's how Google came into existence. The amazing thing is that it wouldn't have made nearly as much money as a private good. So we're looking at a new phenomenon. There aren't that many things that where profit-seeking companies choose to run something as a public good rather than a private good. Um, uh, I suppose the best example is free-to-air TV. Um, but that started before people had the technology to uh, stop people getting access to free-to-air TV. And now we're in a world in which people spontaneously produce public goods. This is a public good produced by a friend of mine, Efstathia Anatolitis, and she's having soup at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. She wants everybody to know that it's good soup. It's a public announcement, public good. Goes out to everyone. Non non-rivalrous, non-excluded. Um, so as I got to think about these, um, these public goods privately provided, I started noticing uh, that they were, there were others around. And then I realised that Adam Smith had in fact written about these things. He's famous for having written The Wealth of Nations, but he also wrote a book more famous in his own time called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And The Theory of Moral Sentiments is about the evolution of human culture, about the, and, and in a sense, one of the questions he's asking, although he's a much more broad philosopher than just an economic philosopher, but for our purposes we can say he's asking the question, how is it that um, I can transact in a, in a shop, get into a Handsome cab. If I don't think I don't know whether they existed in those days, but I can today. I can get into a taxi. I got into a taxi to get here. We didn't fight about the change. There was no. We everybody just uh, obeyed the rules. So throughout social life, there are all these rules of the road, all these things that enable what could be an extremely, um, uh, an extremely hostile competition runs as smoothly as clockwork. Those rules are public goods. Uh, and they emerged from society. Governments came in very late in the day and decided that if, we, if people broke those rules badly enough, we'd send them to jail. But the, 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 the public good is an emergent, what I call an emergent public good. The remarkable thing is that, um, that then there's a, a, a kind of iconic or a foundational public good that made our species and its language. And the government didn't build that. There's only one government I know of that sort of polices it, and that's just across the channel. Uh, but generally, uh, governments don't get involved in that kind of stuff, and yet it, emerge, it is an emergent public good. Adam Smith wrote a treatise about language, and he explained the evolution of language in a way which was very similar to the way he explain the emergence of markets and the emergence of culture. 
Um, now, a very quick aside, there was a time, perhaps in the late 80s and through the 90s, when there were people who were saying that, you know, maybe we could get rid of governments altogether. Couldn't we have... It was a sort of a thought experiment. Maybe you could have a world of just entirely private goods. Well, the closest we uh, know of to a world of entirely private goods is that sort of world. And it's not really a very good world, and that's something that Adam Smith knew about as well. Okay. Um, and the other thing that I noticed is that there is what I call a fractal ecology of public and private goods. So I started my little journey thinking that, um, or somehow having in the back of my mind that Mark, that governments made public goods, markets made private goods, and that was kind of it. And that's not really it at all. What happens is that always and everywhere in any sophisticated human construction, such as this lecture, there are public goods and private goods. There are us's and there are eyes, if you get what I mean. In this room, we all acknowledge a whole bunch of obligations to each other and we also know that we are self-interested in a range of ways as well. That's true in a family, it's true in a firm. In firms are endlessly building the public goods and the culture within them, going on retreats that I've been known to feign death to avoid. Um, so public goods are a really big deal and they are, they're endlessly, that there is this endless ecology uh, between public and private goods. And to give you an example of uh, the, the, the ecology of public and private goods in building a market, this is Adam Smith's story of building a market. There are private goods, people want to trade them. A market comes into existence. The market, the physical market Adam Smith is thinking about is a public good. And then all sorts of things come out of that which are public goods. The price system is a public good, a public good of, of miraculous power as uh, people like Adam Smith and Frederick Hayek um, proselytised. And have a look at what's going on here. This is, I would say, that every successful Web2 platform is an ecology of public and private goods. So consider Google. Uh, Google offers you some utility, some private utility. You're looking for uh, a piece of information, what's on uh, in the in the theatres in Haymarket tonight, and you put it into Google, and Google gives you an answer, and then let's say that it doesn't give you the right answer, it gives you a couple of bad answers, and the third answer is the right, is what you want, and Google is listening to that, and if, enough, if, if several people do that, then what happens to what's at number three? It moves up to number one. And so the, this then becomes a public good that gets fed back into this ecology of public and private good. And um, I could, you know, show me a web platform and I'll show you an ecology like that. That's kind of the secret of getting one of these things going. And Facebook does it in a completely different way. Facebook does it. I mean, Facebook does lots of things, but in terms of search, Facebook does it with affect rather than utility, uh, and uh, and off it goes. So here's my here's my new landscape of these public goods that I got taught about. 
and these public goods that I made up a term for, which is emergent public goods. So you have pure emergent public goods like language. Open source software is a pure emergent public good, just emerges out of life itself, out of the private, largely self-seeking activity of people writing software. And then they have an incentive to donate their software back to the open source project because the last thing they want is for that patch that they've written not to be incorporated into the next distribution. So the whole thing hangs together. And then you've got um, emergent public goods that are facilitated on a platform that someone builds and usually that will cost something and you've got to raise the money to do that. And um, that's and, and over here we have public goods as a problem and over here we have public goods as an opportunity. And the opportunities have been going through the roof. It's interesting, isn't it, that we, everyone's familiar with the term in political discussion, in policy discussion, the free rider problem. You don't hear very much about the free rider opportunity, except from people like Thomas Jefferson, uh, whose policy work, because he was, a, he was involved in the, not just the uh, design of patent law in the US Constitution, but in administering uh, patents, he was very aware of the need to constrain one's, to try and tightly focus one's work in trying to deal with the free rider problem so that one didn't blow the free rider opportunity. Um, and then, and now, and, and of course public sector information, uh, which is the, the one of the main things that this organisation is dedicated to, is uh, certainly a public good, I would call it an emergent public good. Uh, government goes on itself. Uh, I mean, some of it is not an emergent public good. Some of it will be funded specifically because it has value more widely and other public sector information will come from administering public sector activity and is therefore an emergent, an emergent property of that. Uh, so, so here's my question for you. All of these things over here are, all of these things over here are things that we either just emerged themselves or in the case of Google and Facebook and Wikipedia we managed to, to cobble together some clever way of funding a public good. So I suggest to you there must exist a large area where there are potential public goods possibly digital, well likely digital public goods, a lot of them will be digital public goods, but they can't quite get the funding to be as healthy as Google. Uh, what are they? What do they look like? Let's, let's try and invent some. Okay, so I'm now going to cut back to this report that we wrote for a media network which where we were asked to estimate the value to G20 economies of a more vigorous commitment to open data. And one of the things that I was very keen to do with this was to argue and to show that there's much more to open data than just getting public sector information out there as valuable and as worthwhile as that is. And so the two areas that um, are... Uh, so, so here's one area which is information held by the government and that's been um, uh, in Australia, 
in line with our task force recommend in line with the activities of our task force um, freedom of information went from being a constitutional type of agenda to an agenda which was both a constitutional hygiene agenda as far as you know your ability to know what's being said about you in government files to that and an economic agenda which is that there's all this information in government and we should be trying to maximize the free rider opportunity on that and the other thing is publicly funded research which again this was a review that I was on we recommended and the government accepted although it, it's sort of um, difficult to make progress on this stuff because it because there are so many institutional details but we argued that any government funded research should be uh, any data that was that was generated and that should be open data again to optimise the free rider opportunity. But when we were doing our analysis, we thought that, 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 that um, uh, maximising those opportunities would only add about 0.27% of GDP, uh, and uh, we thought the benefits of open data were much larger than that. Here's a diagram from McKinsey illustrating different types of data. Um, and I think most of that's pretty, um, pretty uh, self-explanatory. I've added their research findings and data to uh, line up with the previous slide. But there is a great deal of data that is, um, there is a great deal of data that is um, uh, more than just data that government has got. And then, of course, your question is, well. How do you get this data out there? If you mandate that it comes out, well, some of the, we do that some t in some areas like corporate information, and that can work, but there are lots of ways in which, you, well, firstly, trying to mandate lots of other data to come out will run into political opposition, and it might also muck up the data, because if you know that you have to publish something, that creates a whole bunch of incentives in publishing it. So the question is, can we come up with uh, ways to maximise openness of data outside government data? And I'll talk a little bit about that. Here's a, here are some results from McKinsey. And McKinsey uh, rather heroically argued that the benefits from open data are between three and five trillion dollars uh, to the world economy. Uh, and there's, uh, I'm not being rude about them when I said it was heroic because to doesn't matter how much time you spend uh, to try and work that out. You have to make lots of heroic assumptions, as we did. And that's uh, and that was actually just in, uh, I think, seven different domains. And I'm surprised, really surprised, that the benefits in healthcare are as low as they are. I think they're much higher than that. Uh, but I haven't done any sort of detailed work in it. Um, there's some really great sound effects going on. Here. Um, <laughs> It's, it's really good. Um, so, uh, uh, this is a nice illustration of, wh of different, where different kinds of data come from. And I think this is quite interesting that I'm going to show you a way. We, we have more closed, more open, personal and government. And you can see sort of census data, all these kinds of things are, are open. So how could you open up individual genome data? Who would want to do that? Well, you don't want to do it sort of open slather, but can you get at that sort of data? How can we access that sort of data, which is clearly 
very sensitive private information, how can we get, value, get public value out of that? I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, these are all the ways that governments have influence as a provider of data, which I've talked about. There are lots of things governments can do as a catalyst, uh, as a user and as a policy maker. Those are that tables again from McKinsey. So we, what, so what we did was we, uh, our job was to estimate the value of open data to Australia and to the G20. And one thing we did is we basically took McKinsey's and we thought of we thought McKinsey's would provide a good um, sort of upper bound of our estimates. So we said that we'll t and, and so we wanted to be conservative. So we took the lower bound of McKinsey rather than the upper bound for our upper bound. We then said only two thirds of the gains are value added because some of these benefits require you to 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 um, spend money um, generating the data, that only half is due to policy and three quarters remain to be realised. That got us to 16 billion or about 1% of Australia's GDP. So there's an interesting thing you can do. Australian, uh, a number in Australian dollars is as a share of the Australian economy quite similar to the same number in British pounds to the British economy. Uh, we, you've got about three times our population, the pound is about twice the value of the dollar and we're quite a lot richer than you but that's not because we deserve to be. Um, the, uh, so th the other thing we had to do was we had to con confine our studies to um, areas that the G20 had argued were areas that they wanted to focus in so we did that as well. So. We've got one way of estimating these things, which is to just take McKinsey and do, do, do some sort of back of the envelope adjustments to it and come up with a number. And then we went into some of these areas and looked at little case studies about how we could, how we could change things. Those case studies are partial, like McKinsey, so there's lots they leave out. They range over public and private open data. That's, so we're not just talking about PSI or public information, we're talking about private information too. They focus on incremental benefits and they, suge they suggested really to our great surprise that our McKinsey-based upper bound was in fact conservative. So the first one I'll look at, uh, I'm going to look at two of the ones we looked at. One is macroeconomic management. Now, um, remarkably, um, there is, there are real, there are live data resources that the Australian government has got that it sort of dipped into at the time of the economic crisis uh, to find, to try and find out what was going on in the economy, but um, doesn't still make a routine of using them. The classic is BAS statements. BAS statements are business activity statements, and they are the form that uh, and the data that firms file with, the tax, with our tax office to pay their quarterly or monthly GST, which is the equivalent of your, your VAT. Um, that obviously has very valuable information. The tax office is getting that data every day uh, and aggregating it every month. And it's remarkable that that's not used in macroeconomic management. But So that's the sort of thing we could do. The other thing that we are starting to do, you, I expect you'd be doing it because you tend to be ahead of us on open data generally, is that Treasury is following the 
uh, and the US Fed is doing this as well, and it's something we recommended a while ago, and not that they're following our recommendation, they're doing it with their own accord, but uh, which is if there are models to forecast the economy in Treasury, they're public good and they should be out there. Uh, so that's starting to happen in Australia. So that's another benefit. Those two benefits we reckon might improve the, uh, the, the ability to make a decision about whether you raise interest rates or not, how, how, you, how you set fiscal policy by, say, 5%. And there's another really big opportunity, which is that a great deal of accounting is now done, or, and, and, and this will grow very, very substantially, I would have thought, uh, very, uh, very substantially in the near future, and that is accounting in the cloud. Uh, and accounting based on standard software packages. I don't know what yours are. Uh, there's a company in New Zealand that I think is quite aggressively courting the world. It's called Xero. Um, uh, and certainly a lot of small businesses in Australia are now using Xero as an accounting method. Um, now, we should be approaching those that company and saying we would like to get their help in taking the pulse of the Australian economy. If you can get another 7.5% improvement out of that, then there's a trick, there's a, well, trick, I don't know whether you call it a trick, there's a fact, which is that economies, that recessions impose costs on economies proportionate to the square of their severity. So if you reduce severity by 12.5%, you improve, that you reduce the costs by about a quarter and you're starting to talk big money. So that's $3.6 billion annually uh, if you can, obviously it doesn't accrue annually, it, it comes in large lumps as every now and again you have a less shallow recession than you needed to have and a better constrained boom than you had. Um, there you go, this is very good. <laughs> I don't know, my compliments to the organisers, it's really going very, it's really going very well. I'm looking forward to the rest of my lecture. Um, okay, so um, I hope we don't get struck down. Uh, it'd be a good sort of finale. And the other, the other, um, the other one I want to uh, talk to you about is better workplaces, a, a, an enthusiasm of mine uh, and a sort of policy enthusiasm of mine because I think we just don't, uh, economists don't think of something like intrinsic motivation in work as a, an engine of production every bit as powerful as self-interest, but I reckon it is, and it's again, it's a bit like public goods of opportunity, it's a progressive, as, as our economy becomes more complex and sophisticated, intrinsic motivation at work becomes more and more important, more and more impossible to make really good progress if you don't have it. Um, so, first, so, so again, I'm going to take you through the same story here, which is that we could use PSI better than we do, uh, and in addition, we could uh, find ways of getting the uh, getting of, of uh, leveraging pr uh, private information better. So, our um, this is a picture of our state of the service report in in Australia. It is constructed by the Australian, uh, the, the, the um, Australian Public Service Commission and it has got lots of data in it and it's all very well documented and carefully reported so that you can't compare anyone with anyone else. 
So you get aggregate data, but if you want to know whether the employees in Treasury think, think more of their managers than the employees in Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, well, best of luck to you. You're not going to find out. And if you did that, that would be its own driver of pressures on people to manage better, basically. And a nice little factoid for you is that the, the um, US agency, and the US does publish this information, the US agency that came, I th there are thousands of agencies that came, I think, in the bottom three or maybe at the bottom at the time of Hurricane Katrina was, you guessed it, FEMA. Uh, so that's an, a good example of how much utility there is in this information if it is released in the right sort of way. Um, here's an illustration of how much value can be made out of um, APS jobs data comes from the Government Gazette. And this is run by a friend of mine, Felix Barbalet. Uh, and he set this thing up. He had to scrape all the data off pages like that. And every few months, the APSC, the Australian Public Service Commission, would change the formatting and he'd have to spend a lot more time reconfiguring the way he was scraping it. And he's given up uh, because he's got better things to do. Uh, it costs him too much money to get other people to do this. Um, and then there was a... There's also been a government committee. Uh, see, this, this website, what it does is it mines data from past gazettes and can give you complete bios of public servants insofar as, the, of public servant careers insofar as those careers have been in the public service. So if you're, an, an, uh, if you're somebody either in the public service or outside the public service who wants to hire someone who knows something about defense policy and also know something about computer coding, you go here, you go to this site, you don't go to the Government Gazette because you won't be, you know, you'll be forever trying to find out the information. So you can see how much value is generated from that. That's the site in Australia and it's led to the project essentially being wound down. I, as I was going to say, there was a government, there was also committees being held uh, saying that this was against the human rights of the of the public servants and uh, anyway uh, so he stopped and in the meantime in the in in here in in uh, sunny London uh, this stuff has been done properly uh, and you go onto the relevant site and it says you know do you want it as a CSV file Excel PDF XML or whatever that's how it should be uh, there's another thing you can do ask yourself this ask yourself this question there is Lots of data in all in small and me, sorry in, in medium and large sized companies about what employees think of their employment. Um, wouldn't it be nice if it was all public? Well, yes, it would. Why isn't it published? Quick answer: because firms would be embarrassed. But it's not a complete answer because some firms would do really well out of it. The firms that perform well. Why don't they publish it? I think the answer is they don't publish because there's no standard to publish against. So there's a plan for you. Uh, convene a standard setting body. A government could do that. The Archbishop of Canterbury can do it if he wants to. You need convening power. Uh, uh, you, you, you need someone to sort of say, let's do this. I understand Joanna Lumley has started a 
movement to build a bridge across the River Thames, that's convening power for you. Governments have got it. You don't have to coerce anyone and you say which firms in England want to be part of this journey to show that they're great employers, they have to be part of a process of setting a standard, then we'll send the, uh, the government st statistician out to compulsorily survey, say, 2,000, 3,000 workplaces against the standard. Then people have got a landscape to report against, and then they can say, as far as family friendliness is concerned, we're in the 13th percentile. As far as uh, career rewards are, we're in this percentile. It's a voluntary system. You get a lot of data out there. You create a market in management and in workplace satisfaction. I think that would be, that would be a hugely economically and socially beneficial thing. We calculated the, uh, we did a sort of a, a back of the envelope calculation, not of that benefit that I'm talking to you about, but simply of the benefits of better data management in the public service and some improvement to teacher, matching teachers to classrooms, which you can get, which governments have got a lot of influence over the data that exists in educational systems and so we could do that and there is literature which shows you that better matching of teachers to classrooms is equivalent to improving that gets you results equivalent to improving the quality of teachers much more cheaply uh, now I was gonna I do I'll tell you I'll show you one other cool thing this is how much better you're doing than we are in open data that's not the other cool thing but I've taken more time than I thought I would, but I do want to just show you one other cool thing. So let me do that. Um, so I wanted a killer, I want a killer example in here, a public-private partnership in data. And uh, there are a bunch of examples, and I maybe can talk about those in uh, questions. But here's Anne Wojcicki talking about 23andMe. For those who don't know what 23andMe is, it costs $99, it's a little kit, they send you the kit, you spit into the kit, you send it back, they do a partial genome on you, and I was watching, uh, and that, uh, this can then be, they then survey you for your phenotype, which is, you know, whether you've got a bad back and whether your mum died of breast cancer or whatever, so they're compared, so you're then able to do science on a massive scale, do genetic science, matching genetic characteristics with um, uh, with, with uh, what happens to us um, and of course once they've got your partial genome that you, the private good you get out of this is that they can send you they can tell you if you're particularly susceptible to certain kinds of certain kinds of issues um, so I'm watching this presentation and at the time they were charging $2.99 they've now spent they've now got 50, raised $50 million and cut the price to 99 at the time they had 180 thousand customers. They've now got 600,000 customers. I'm thinking here's my killer example because this delivered as a public good rather than a private good gives you the kind of leverage that Google gets from going public but from delivering itself as a public good rather than a private good. How would it work? Through your system we have a socialised health insurer. You've got the whole box and dice of socialised medical system but basically the system would pay the $99, which with uh, you know, scale economies becomes less than that, obviously. And the system 
gains a capital asset, which is your partial genome, with which it can which it can turn to economic use by tailoring screening programs and so on more efficiently. Uh, so that's the that's that's the thing accounted for. And then you don't get six hundred thousand people. You get oh, this is an opt-in system. Anyone who doesn't like it doesn't have to opt in, your privacy is protected, etc, etc. But I would imagine in Britain you'd get 30, 40 million people signing up without any trouble. Uh, and, you, and, and these systems work, start becoming incredibly more powerful with more numbers. Uh, just to show you something, this is, uh, and this is also in our report, 23andMe science, and, and Associated Scientists wrote this paper which replicated 180 genetic associations through the 23andMe database with just 180,000 people on it. And it costs about $400,000 to replicate one of these things in the traditional way. So we report in our report that that's a 10,000% improvement on doing that particular piece of science. Uh, so the, the, the possibilities are remarkable. I will leave it there, but I, uh, except to say there are endless... Uh, these are the repertoires of what I call government as impresario. I say government as impresario because it doesn't cost much money at all, and you can bring off remarkable things. Lots of different tricks to pull, lots of different ways to get publics, the, the public and to optimise the public and private aspects of these things. Uh, and this is a similar sort of set of things in open data. Uh, finally, this costs next to nothing and liberates vast amounts of value. And you may be familiar with that character, I don't know, uh, from Kath and Kim. I don't know whether that took off here. Most Australian comedies do. But uh, what is there not to like, indeed? So that didn't go down nearly as well in Berlin. <laughs> anyway, I'll leave it there and very happy to uh, uh, sort of respond to any comments or questions. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.